Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. having gone from being a society which was, in many important ways, ahistorical. You know, life was as it is and it will be ever thus. To suddenly encountering changes that nobody could have imagined. You know, if you think about a community of isolated hunter-gatherers living in a particular way and suddenly encountering people on horseback with guns and um, complex models of economy and trade and all sorts of things, these changes were just utterly unimaginable. So for them now, history, you know, their experience of life in the world and their ancestors is very much the same as ours. They anticipate change and they imagine different futures. But in the past, um, their lives were based on imagining, not bothering imagining the future, because the future would large, almost certainly be, you know, not the same as the present, but it would all take place in a very similar way to the present. Um, so now they've sort of gone from this idea of having, you know, there was a time of creation, which was um, first time. Then there was old times, which is a new idea. So old times is when people hunted and gathered. And then new times, which is now, is this period of just constant, unpredictable change. So what distinguishes new times, and that's very much how our lives are shaped, is the fact that the only thing we're pretty certain is that the world we're living in won't be the same in five years' time as it is today. How it will be different, we have no idea. Whereas for Jean-Rassi in the past, the one thing that they used to be almost, they had no reason to think any other way, was that in five years' time, the world will be pretty much exactly the same as it is today. In the Kalahari, rain is a great creator and drought the great destroyer. The words of British anthropologist and writer Dr James Sussman from his new book, Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushman, published by Bloomsbury. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to travel to the remote and isolated Kalahari Desert in southern Africa and ask, what can we learn from the San people? In Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushmen, James Sussman writes... The evolutionary success of the Khoisan was not based on their ability to continuously colonise new lands, expand and grow into new spaces or develop new technologies, but on the fact that they mastered the art of making a living where they were. James goes on to argue, the evidence of hunting and gathering societies suggest that both Marx and neoliberal economists were wrong about human nature. We are more than capable of leading fulfilled lives that are not defined by our labour. So, is there something of the hunter-gatherer in us all? And do we radically need to reappraise our culture of work? Hello, my name is James Sussman. Um, I'm an anthropologist and I suppose part-time, part-time writer. Um, I've been living and working with uh, San people, um, sometimes thought of as Bushman people for the last 25 years. Um, and I've recently published a book called Affluence Without Abundance, The Disappearing World of the Bushmen, in which what I try to do is look at how the Bushmen made a living and try and apply that to some of the problems that we face in the modern world today. 
Really well done on the book, James, Affluence Without Abundance. I have to say it's a very moving piece of writing and very perceptive in parts. I might throw you a big wide open question to kick things off if that's okay. What does a reasonably good society look like to you and how do you understand it all? I think I'm going to have to answer that question a bit like a, a, bit like a politician. Um, I don't really know the answer to that question. And I think philosophers and political theorists have been trying to think of answers to that question for, well, for as long as we've really had society. Um, however, I do think it's a particularly pertinent question to ask now. I think we live at a very interesting point in human history, um, one where really all of the old models, all of the old ways of living no longer really seem to apply. We're in a planet with seven going upwards towards eight billion people. And we consume energy in ways that even a century ago would have seemed utterly unimaginable. Um, and as a result of this, we really risk cannibalizing our future. And along with it, we risk cannibalizing the future, the future of our species and the future of other species. Um, this means that we have to think about things in a very different way. And I think one of the big problems, one of the big challenges is really the way we do think about things like success. So our model of success tends to be based on generating and creating wealth, um, on achieving certain goals which are related to work. We define ourselves by the jobs that we do, by how well we do at them, and how productive we are at them. But the danger is now that our obsession with work, our obsession with doing stuff and being productive um, risk doing more damage in the long term than actually doing doing less stuff. So I think what we have to do is begin to re-understand and re-examine our relationship to what it is that drives us in life to do certain things. And I think there's real value in looking to the past in terms of how we understand this problem. And when I say looking to the past, I mean looking at hunter-gatherers in particular, because what's so interesting about hunter-gatherers is that unlike... Unlike us, they didn't focus particularly on achieving goals, on creating a continuously different future. Rather, their lifestyle was based on maintaining things as they were. And as a result of this, they ended up working not particularly hard and being extraordinarily successful from an evolutionary point of view. So if we think about human history since the evolution of modern Homo sapiens, let's say 300,000 years ago, um, the largest and most sustainable period in that history was our period as hunter-gatherers. It's only been 10,000 years ago that we started farming. And since then, boy, things have changed a lot. So it's really about looking backwards and understanding whether there's something that we might be able to learn from our hunting and gathering past as we try to look towards mapping a new future for our species. And I think it's something that we need to do fairly urgently. When I say the word Bushman, what jumps into your mind? What do you instantly think of? Well, when you say the word Bushman, I think of really the various friends and people that I've, I've met out there. I mean, it's interesting with anthropology is that, you know, an anthropologist's job is really to navigate between different societies, between people who appear at least superficially to be extremely different. And in doing so, we end up making the strange familiar and the familiar strange. So when I think of Bushmen, I think of close friends. I think of people I don't get on with. I think of basically normal people. And I think the great sort of joy of anthropology and the value of actually spending so long with people who are superficially so very different is that after a period of time, everybody reveals themselves to be human. And every strange cultural practice 
reveals itself to have a sort of certain internal logic. So it creates this kind of fairly relativistic mindset, but one where you get a real sense of empathy and understanding for how people who can think what appears superficially massively different things, um, how actually normal they are, how ordinary they are. So it's a great sort of ordinariness maker. Why do you think it is, though, James, that we have quite an incomplete history of Bushmen? Do you think um, that is it down to misunderstandings or ideas of separation or that idea of difference? Well, I think, I think, there, I think there's sort of several, there's several reasons. The first one's a practical thing. And the practical thing is that our hunting and gathering ancestors didn't leave a great deal of historical traces for us to find. For a start, there weren't that many of them. Secondly, they didn't build great monuments like the Greeks or great buildings or great icons of material culture that we could look at and say, ah, here is a piece of history from that. Um, most of the stuff that they made was, you know, to put it very simply, it was made out of wood or little pieces of stone. It was small, it was organic, it was leather-based. And, of course, that stuff just doesn't survive. You know, so the little bits of archaeology that we find from which we can piece this history together tend to be you know, very sporadic and spaced out. Um, the second big thing is, of course, that with, in particular, people like the San in Southern Africa, hunter-gatherers, is they had a very different relationship with time to the relationship that we have. Their experience of time was somewhat different. You know, if you can imagine sort of being in amongst the people where every year was more or less the same, um, you know, things didn't change rapidly. We live in a fairly sort of unique era where, you know, every five, ten years, there's a new set of technologies changing the way that we think, interact. And so we continuously are sort of projecting into the future and we're looking back at the past to try and make sense of the future. We locate ourselves as sort of beings in this great sort of linear flow of time. Um, with hunter-gatherers, they rather located themselves as part of the sort of rhythmic cyclical process. You know, things changed, of course, every year. You know, the rainy seasons might be different one year to the next. But they always changed within a sort of degree of predictability. They weren't these sort of great upheavals. So people actually just didn't care about history. So what's really interesting with hunter-gatherers, and, you know, I, I learned this to my cost. I mean, the first thing I wanted to study when I started working with them was to develop a, a, a genre a sand version of history. You know, it was at a time where people were very concerned about allowing otherwise marginalized voices to tell their own story. And I kept running into that, and people just didn't talk about the past. They didn't, they didn't have any kind of unifying historical narratives like the ones that help us create nations and so on. And when I started looking more carefully about it, it revealed itself to be a sort of very different set of attitudes towards time. People actually didn't even think about grandfathers that much or great-grandparents. They didn't have individual lineages because it was seen not to be particularly important. And in just the same way that people didn't worry about what they were going to be when they grew up, they knew what they were going to be when they grew up or what they were going to do next year or preparing for the future. All their economic activities were based on their meeting their immediate needs. So this whole idea of sort of having a, a history to talk about actually just didn't exist in the same way that it does for um, in particular sort of agricultural and industrial societies where we create histories to create nations or create ideas about identity. Um, and so that's a sort of major thing is that in a sense, as hunter-gatherers, history didn't really exist in the way that we think of it now. So in the absence of archaeological data and in the absence of, uh, I suppose, established localized historical traditions, um, there isn't really much of a story to tell except 
when you talk about it. You know, recently we found some really interesting new pieces of archaeology which help us piece together. And in particular, um, recently there's been the mapping of the human genome. And one of the things we can do by looking at people's um, genomic makeup is you can almost unpeel it like a historical onion um, and look back into the past. You can understand and map out really revealing things about human history moving back really to the first evolution of our species. And it's really on the basis of that new research that I began to sort of look at some of the ideas that I deal with in the book, some of the big historical ideas, and begin to push this idea that actually, if you judge a success of a society by how long it lasts, the success of a civilization by how long it lasts, then really the sand civilizations in the central and southern Kalahari um, are the oldest civilizations on Earth, and they absolutely dwarf anything from the you know, great Egyptian civilizations to the Victorians to the... In terms of timescales, it's, it's, you know, they were around 100,000 years living, we suspect, a lifestyle fairly similar to the 20th century hunter-gatherers that I worked with. James, you pitched up a very interesting question to one of the community members that you met. You asked him whether Adam and Eve could have been a Bushman, as in like one of the first peoples of Africa. Well, it's again, this is something that comes out of that, that genetic research. Um, you know, and the, the long-term historical genetic research, it's a very mobile, fast-moving space. I mean, people really only started getting to grips with genetics in the last decade. Um, and it seems that almost every couple of weeks we end up with some time boundary being pushed to some established idea on where modern homo sapiens evolved um, moving around. And certainly there's some evidence to suggest that, you know, if modern homo sapiens evolved in a singular place, then, you know, there's a reasonable case to be made to suggest that actually it happened in the northeast, northeast Kalahari, the area that I was working in. Um, what we do know, for example, is that the community, the genetic community of which um, uh, modern sand people are descended, um, effectively separated um, from the rest of humanity about 150,000 years ago. Um, and really, up until about 22,000 years ago, were probably the majority population of Homo sapiens on the planet. So you ended up having two groups of Homo sapiens, one that remained rooted in southern Africa from 150,000 years ago, and then the other which kind of gradually spread up through the rest, you know, through through the rest of the continent and across into um, southern Europe and Asia, and then eventually across to the Americas. Um, and interesting, within those two groups, you end up with um, the Khoisan group, the Southern African group, um, being the most genetically diverse population group on the planet. And what that suggests is that suggests that they were extremely successful. So. Your genetic diversity, your historical genetic diversity, is really a measure of, can be used as a measure of how many times a population group encountered cataclysmic famines or genocides or events which effectively, by wiping out so many people, will reduce the diversity within the genetic family tree. So it's almost like if you imagine a tree and you cut off every single branch except one, and then from that branch... Um, everything begins to grow again. You end up with a sort of much, a much less diverse group. And history suggests that the Khoisan were, are extraordinary. I mean, they are. Their current descendants are extraordinarily diverse. And it suggests that they did not suffer the same kind of cataclysmic dieback events that the rest of humanity endlessly suffered. And it also suggests, you know, there's a very strong argument to suggest that actually genetic health is based on greatest diversity.
Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful story in their favour. How do you understand the term uh, primitive affluence? I know you touch on a lot of uh, great literature from the turn of the century on different anthropologists who met with um, different Bushmen groups and um, looked at their ideas on life and their philosophies and why they thrived. So how do you understand it all? Well, I think the easiest way to do it is to really just tell a, tell a story. You know, up until the 1960s, anthropologists, sociologists and others really all of the view that hunter-gatherers, our hunter-gatherer ancestors, led pretty miserable lives, that they were constantly preyed on by wild animals, that there was a constant battle for food, that their lives were, you know, as Hobbes called it, nasty, brutish, and short. And this was a very powerful preconception. It sort of it justified the often dismal treatment that hunter-gatherers received when they were encountered by farmers or later by colonials. Um, but nobody really took the trouble to actually measure how awful their lives were. And then in the 1960s, a group of anthropologists um, operating out of Harvard began to work in Nyanya in northern Namibia, one of the areas where I work. And what they did was, being diligent scientists, they decided to do really simple economic input and output analyses of how hard the Bushmen or the Zhenghuasi, the group that they were working with, had to work in order to make a living. And the results of these studies floored everybody. It turned out that even though the Zhenghuasi were living in one of the toughest environments one could imagine, you know, the northern Kalahari full of lions and predators and very little water, and, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough landscape, um, that they actually not only were extremely well-nourished, and in fact at the time were better nourished better nourished than most people in industrial societies, and um, this was around the 1960s. But they managed to achieve this on the basis of only working 14 or 15 hours a week, so a couple of hours a day. And obviously, this would change depending on the seasons, and there were occasional lean times and so on. But this was, this was a fairly mind-blowing um, revelation. I mean, it seemed that actually far from leading lives of continuous travail, trying to sort of beat back the evil elements. Um, Zhenghuasi led lives of, you know, with quantities of leisure um, that those of us in the sort of working world, you know, only, only achieve if we invested in Apple or Microsoft at the right time. So it, what it did was it created this narrative in anthropology, and it was a guy called Marshall Thalens who came up with it. And he said, look, this is, in a sense, this is the original affluent society, but it required thinking about affluence in a different way. So Modern economics is all based on a, really a single axiom. And that axiom is, people refer to it as the problem of scarcity or the central economic problem. And that is simply that, you know, economic activity is about mediating between humans' apparently infinite desires and our limited means, our inability to achieve those desires. So we work to try and bridge that gap. And the hunter-gatherer material suggested that actually, no, this, this idea that somehow we you know, we're a species that is destined to be continuously hungry for more is, is nonsense because these hunting and gathering societies had um, simple desires that we easily met. And once those basic desires were met, they didn't bother wasting their time trying to get more. So nobody tried, you know, so when people went hunting or when people went gathering, they always only ever got enough to meet their immediate needs. And they did this because they had confidence that the environment would provide them tomorrow, just as if it was sort of like a permanently open, 
free 24-7 shop. Um, and this, of course, affected everything in terms of how they were organized and how they understood their lives and, of course, how they interacted with their environment. So this idea of primitive affluence was that actually, you know, their path to leisure and comfort was instead of by setting themselves impossible aspirations and um, ambitions as goals, was to set very easy and straightforward ambitions based on what they thought of as the fundamental and important things in life, eating, having time with your family and so on, and being able to meet those with relative ease. It's a completely different way of looking at life when you think about it, James, because how a lot of people today would look at their lives, how their jobs would dominate and possibly all the aspirations and then the demands of whether it's a mortgage or pension plans or whatever it is, that they get ground down and thinking about that and less about community and less about collaboration and less about time. Yes, I, th- I think that's I think that's the sort of fundamental it's the fundamental challenge that, that we've reached. Um, you know, I mean, we live again in this very, very interesting times. I mean, as a species, in particular in the last 100 years, you know, we've become incredibly productive. You know, nobody on this planet needs starve. Where there's a famine event, even in the most, you know, if it's southern Sudan or anywhere, it is now no longer a question of production. It is a question of distribution. It is politics that creates famines rather than our inability to produce. There's more than enough food in this world for everybody. In fact, there's so much that pretty much half of everything we produce ends up one way or another in landfill. Um, so we're at this point in our history where actually we don't need to work a great deal. Our basic needs are relatively easy to meet at this point. Um, yet we have this culture of work that forces us forward. So if you think about it, we have you know, politics is shaped by this drive, continuous drive towards having full employment all the time. And so you end up with people, and you know, there's actually not enough stuff to do. So you end up with people having to do telemarketing to sell something, you know, to sell some fragment of nonsense to, I don't know, my, I think of half the things my children buy from Pokemon cards to God knows what. Um, but you, you have this sort of culture where we're continuously trying to create work in order for people to be legitimate participants in our society. Um, and you have to create work because that way you earn money and you can get more stuff. But it requires continuously updating our iPhones and so on. It creates this kind of disposable, very consumption-based, um, this consumption-based culture. And, you know, all of that, of course, would be fine if we didn't have these what are pretty obvious environmental constraints. If we don't pay heed to those environmental constraints, it could, it could well cost us in the long term. James, you visited uh, the Schoonhaze resettlement camp, I think it was in the early 90s when you began researching the Khoisan people and I think you were setting out to do a PhD and a lot has changed in terms of rights and I suppose um, opportunities for the Khoisan people. But can you describe the culture that you uh, first met with in the early 1990s? Well, the, the San world in the early 90s was fairly diverse. So when I started working at Schoonhaze, resettlement camp. I mean, my focus was on actually, um, I wanted to understand recent Zhongwa San history. Um, and also, I wanted to understand how um, hunter-gatherer populations, when they were forced to, ended up interacting with agriculturalists and farmers, you know, industrial people, um, given this kind of sort of gap in, gap in values between them. Um, what I ended up focusing on, and certainly the first couple of years' work I did, was actually the colonial encounter between the Zhenghua group in the Omeheke, 
where Schoenheit was, and the mainly white Afrikaans-speaking farmers, there were German farmers too, and also um, the other African farming societies, the Herero, um, which is a very powerful or historically very powerful pastoralist people. Um, the nature of the encounter between them and the Zhenghuasi was absolutely horrendous. I mean, it was, it, was, it was sort of a bit like, I imagine, sort of a Stalinist gulag. Effectively, because Zhenghuasi were not particularly good farm workers, they were effectively made prisoners on the white farms and beaten and forced into work through a sort of horrendous culture of violence. And so when I encountered them, which was soon after Namibia's independence from apartheid South Africa, it was really a sort of group of people who had endured you know, this horrific 30-, 40-year period of virtual slavery where they were constantly diminished, where you know, the people that had taken their land viewed them as little more than sort of things from the bush, almost sort of half animals. Um, and so they were sort of diminished. Their dignity had been robbed of them, and they suffered all the problems that one would imagine you know, any group of people would feel if they were stuck as an absolute underclass at the bottom of the pile. There were very high levels of endemic violence. Um, you know, and of course, you know, people at the bottom of the pile often take out their anger on one another. So there was huge amounts of violence. Alcoholism was rife, and you know, Zhenghuasi don't have any tradition of drinking. You know, so alcohol just didn't exist in their world. Um, you know, before before they encountered farmers, um, and so when people drank, they used it as an excuse to sort of let out all these frustrations. And it was a very tough and difficult difficult place. And at the same time, they felt hugely powerless. They were in, had to endure constant mockery from others. Um, so it was very tough. So the focus of my work initially was very much on actually understanding the dynamics of colonialism, in a sense, and the way people's lives were robbed of this, you know, not only were they robbed of their land and their livelihoods and their ability to live as they had for such an extraordinarily long period of time, but also um, the extent to which they were robbed of their dignity and their humanity and felt, as they still often do today, I mean, extremely powerless in terms of any ability to be able to break out of, you know, what became the sort of self-reproducing cycle of poverty and marginalization. Um, so it was, it was very tough. It was only really in years after that that I began to sort of see through and beyond the immediacy um, of, you know, that particularly awful period and that, you know, you know that ongoing kind of political issues relating to their marginalization to begin to sort of distill out of it the sort of threads of continuity with their previous existence as hunter-gatherers and try and get a sort of better sense of, you know, what their story tells us about ourselves. It's a very uncomfortable history and um, I'm sure you asked yourself lots of very uh, difficult questions as you got to know the Kosan people. You're using um, gentle click sounds, isn't that it, when you're um, using different words? Yes, that's that's right. Um, I mean, the languages, you know, so all the Khoisan languages, of which there are many, um, are click-based. Um, and there's a good argument to suggest that, you know, this, this goes back really to early in the evolution of um, human languages. And the Khoisan languages are very diverse. Um, so they tend to have quite small user user communities, and then one language will be completely indistinguishable from another. But to an outside ear, because these all use clicks um, and glottal stops and tone, they all sound very, very similar. Um, and there's an awful lot of clicking that goes on in them. There are actually only four individual clicks um, that are used, but each one can be done in a completely different way. 
Um, you know, so the four clicks very simply are, and, but each one you can nasalize, aspirate, pharyngealize, and do it with a glottal stop. So if I was to say the word um, ko, which means elephant, you can take that click from ko and do it as a ngo, a ko, a ko, a ko, and so on and so on. So it's, so it's a sort of very, it's phonemically a sort of very dense and complex language. Um, much more so, interestingly, than English, actually. So it creates incredible scope for expressive, poetic and expressive culture. Um, and when people speak it well, it really is its truly beautiful to hear. And it's not surprising that they have this sort of amazing tradition of storytelling and narrative forms and narrative games. The San people, uh, as you mentioned, understand time entirely differently to how we do. They have first times, old times, and I suppose we're now all living in what they understand as the new times. I thought that was really interesting because it, it changes how you look at history as well, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, again, this is, you know, they're in this interesting position of having gone from being a society which was in many important ways ahistorical. You know, life was as it is and it will be ever thus to suddenly encountering changes that nobody could have imagined, you know, just completely unimaginable. It's sort of, you know, if you think about a community of isolated hunter-gatherers living in a particular way and suddenly encountering people on horseback with guns and um, complex models of economy and trade and all sorts of things, these changes were just utterly unimaginable. So for them now, history, you know, their experience of life in the world and their ancestors is very much the same as ours. They anticipate change and they imagine different futures. But in the past, um, their lives were based on imagining, not bothering imagining the future, because the future would large, almost certainly be, you know, not the same as the present, but it would all take place in a very similar way to the present. Um, you know, the seasons would continue and they would operate in much the same way as they always had. Um, so now they've sort of gone from this idea of having, you know, there was a time of creation, which was um, first times, and there was old times, which is a new idea. So old times is when people hunted and gathered. And then new times, which is now, is this period of just constant, unpredictable change. So what distinguishes new times, and that's very much how our lives are shaped, is the fact that the only thing we're pretty certain is that the world we're living in won't be the same in five years' time as it is today. How it will be different, we have no idea. Whereas for Jean in the past, the one thing that they used to be almost, they had no reason to think any other way, was that in five years' time, the world will be pretty much exactly the same as it is today. That, that's the big shift. And, you know, the truth is, you know, as with all people, um, I mean, Jean Grassi now are far more similar to us than they ever have been because, of course, they're subject to the same kinds of forces and changes and shifts that we are. James, you're right, there is a pervasive sense of fragility to Nainai and a muted acceptance that change in some form or another is inevitable. And you write how this region has had to, I suppose, work within the cash economy when before that they didn't. Yeah. And it presents so many moral questions on life, but also some very fundamental questions in how we organise ourselves as societies. Yeah, well, Nainai is a very interesting place. Um, so over the last century, pretty much all the sand people, and there are only 100,000 left in southern Africa, um, experienced chronic land loss. Their lands were whipped away from under their feet. As soon as people worked out ways of sucking out water from underneath the desert sand, farmers moved in and pushed the hunter-gatherers out. Now, Nyanya is interesting in that 
it's the one place that this didn't happen. It was the sites, you know, under the apartheid regime, they created a bit of a, what they called in those days, a Bushman reserve. Um, but effectively what it did was it enabled um, the local community of Jintwasi there to become the only community of Jintwasi that retain at least some meaningful control over that traditional land. And because they've maintained control over that, some of that traditional land, it's much diminished to what it was, but you know they have some space. It has meant that despite all the intrusions of the cash economy over the last 30, 40 years, and there were massive intrusions during the liberation war from Namibia, the army moved in there massively, and, and Asi were recruited almost entirely into the army. There were massive development programs. But because they maintained their land or had access to land, people still continued to hunt and gather, um, or they had the option of being able to hunt and gather. So in places like Skernhate, where I did my first work, really hunting and gathering ceased to be a viable option because the land had all gone. And, you know, you could, if you went hunting, you were hunting on some white farmer's land, and they'd be happy to shoot you if they caught you poaching. Um, whereas no, no, people continued to be able to hunt and gather. And counterintuitively, all the, you know, the government agencies and so on that were involved imagined that, you know, as soon as these hunter-gatherers, as soon as the Jinkwasi were showed processed food and agriculture, they, they'd leap onto that bandwagon and embrace it. Ah, this is so much better than our lives. Yet, counterintuitively, what happened was that what people certainly experimented with agriculture and store-bought food and jobs and so on, they actually found it, you know, fairly distasteful. And they embraced the ability that being able to still hunt and gather to a degree gave them to only participate selectively in the dominant cash economy. And that's something that they've been able to continue doing in various ways and means ever since then. So if you go to Nyai Nyai now, you know, and again, despite ongoing and quite big development programs, you know, very economically focused and so on, people still seem determined to A, remain in their villages, and B, to use hunting and gathering as a means um, to partially break their dependency on the central economy, to keep this... Uh, idea of um, independence. So, you know, when people are hungry and they absolutely need it, they'll try and get, whether it's from the government food aid or, or from through work, they'll try and secure something. But still a significant number of people, you know, are happy to just get enough to enable them to enable them to continue to live in the villages as they did. And that includes going gathering, hunting occasionally. Um, they have a community organization that sells hunting rights to rich tourists. Um, and interestingly enough, that money um, that is generated um, has enabled enabled them to actually keep things keep things going. It helps sort of maintain community water points and so on. So in a sense, Nyai Nyai is is a you know it's a very interesting place. Here's a community that's been part of the cash economy for really 50, 60 years, one way or another, but where people have decided um, that they will only participate in it to the extent that they need to to meet their material basic material needs, and where they can meet those same needs from hunting and gathering or from doing participating in small projects and so on, they've been able to do that. But what it has meant is that you haven't ended up as you would in some, many similar areas with you know young men in particular moving into moving into cities and desperately trying to get jobs, which happens really all over Namibia, where lots of sort of rural communities are effectively gutted because, you know, young kids want to own four-wheel drives and fancy houses and have a satellite TV, and so they move into these squatter settlements in, in urban areas where there's very little work to have, and you end up having a sort of vast, massive urban poor. 
Whereas in Nyanya, you have this one small group and the only group of Jinwasi that are able to do so who've been really able to stay that. Um, and I think it's a, a, a thing of extraordinary, extraordinary value. Um, and I think it's why it's so important um, in terms of empowering people and indigenous people who've lost land to at least regain some access to land in order that you know, perhaps they might be able to engage only selectively in you know, a potentially damaging and difficult um, overarching political economy. Mm-hmm.